0: Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 10, and we are continuing in this genealogical look at the sons of Noah... And so as we've looked at the sons of Noah last week beginning where there was a bunch of introduction that we did and it's still somewhat important for us to hear this for those who weren't here last week and are hearing this for the first time, I'll go through this very, very briefly. I would encourage you to listen to last week's message only for the section that I will just reference, I really won't even get into it, that relates to the... Um, the consistency between languages of the East and languages of the West, the fact that there is a central connectedness that is there. It's found here in Genesis 10 and 11. I thought it was a fascinating point. And so as we looked at this introduction to the sons of Noah, we need to remember that this is a selective genealogy. Moses is not concerned with providing a detailed list of every son and every grandson and every great-great-grandson. He wants to highlight the most important and influential people that will impact the life of the nation of Israel, most especially as the nation of Israel is newly formed in the wilderness waiting to go into the promised land. So this selective genealogy is true here as it was as we looked at the line of Cain and especially the line of Seth. Each of those are selective and not to be considered an exhaustive exploration. What Moses is concerned with is providing a picture for modern Israel. As I mentioned, they're on the verge of entering into the promised land as Moses has written this, even though he's taking us all the way back to the beginning of history. So if Moses did write this during the wilderness wandering, as many suppose, and he is painting an effort Ethnic, national, geographical, and political picture for the world that Israel is about to enter into under the leadership of Joshua. Moses is also concerned with connecting the promise of God that was given to Genesis 3.15 when the seed of the woman would eventually crush the head of the serpent and he is making that connection all the way back from Genesis 3.15 and to what Israel is eventually going to experience with the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, who is going to crush the head of the serpent. That promise is fulfilled in Christ, but that promise that we know and enjoy and look forward to its culmination of in our lives flows through the nation of Israel, the the one to whom God gave covenants and promises and adoption, the law, the scriptures, the ministry of proclamation, initiated with the covenant that God is going to make with Abraham. So he is making a connection through Abraham, to the nation of Israel, and to the promise of Genesis 3.15 of the past. It's also important to remember that this is not in chronological order. What we're seeing here in the table of nations through Genesis 10 actually comes to pass after the Tower of Babel, when God scatters all of these peoples all over the world, it is then that these nations are actually established. So part of the goal here is to communicate a common ancestry between Israel and all of the nations that will eventually come from these three sons of Noah. All of humanity traces its origin back to the sons of Noah, regardless of the current modern ethnic, national, geographical, political differences that may exist. Yahweh is the God of all peoples, not just Israel, that is why they were given The ministry of proclamation. That is why we as Christians are given that same ministry today. That leads us to this reality that there is a common Savior. All the nations of the world have come from the three sons of Noah. All have a common ancestry and possess the need for a common savior. So as we look now at the sons of Joah in review, the first one we looked at was the sons of Japheth. Last week we looked at the seven sons of Japheth, who is the father of what is called the Indo-European nations. Of these sons, only the line of two grandsons is developed. Again, Moses' primary purpose is preparing Israel of his day for the world they would, in, they would enter upon crossing the Jordan River into the promised land. Now, a little bit a picture, hopefully you can see this the green here is primarily going to be the descendants of Japheth and they eventually went up into the Indo-European nations, so all of this up here is considered Indo-European this is what Japheth Actually, is the father of, and as you listen to how the languages that are common in this area and the Far Eastern language have that common root, it's a fascinating validation of what it is we read about in Genesis 11 when all people spoke the same language and then were scattered abroad. It's, a, it's fascinating to me. So today we look at the lineage of Ham and then Shem, and I'm going to provide just a very brief overview and hit the highlights, which is going to take. Long longer than you would probably prefer. Genealogies are not riveting information, but they are very, very important. Since this is a long list of names and places, we're going to read through this in smaller pieces. So we look now at the sons of Ham. Verse 6 of Genesis chapter 10. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. So there are four sons born to him. These sons eventually will father the many nations that are part of what is considered the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Canaanites, who would become Israel's most influential neighbors and their bitter enemy. So as you read through the history of Israel, it is these groups that are going to lead them into idolatry. It is also these groups that Israel is called, is going to wage war against as God gives them the land that he has carved out for them. So as we look at this map again, we're going to see now the line of Ham, the descendants of Ham which is this orange stuff and you can kind of see where they go. They're generally in this area all the way down here into Cush. And so this is, by best accounts, the table of nations that we see here. And so there's some debate about the actual date of this table of nations. And so there's an impossibility of providing any precise dating to the table of nations, this history predates secular historical records. So there's just not a lot to compare. And when you take what you see here and impose that upon the most, well, the the most accurate table of nations of secular history you see some things that don't mesh very well so this is a very conservative way of expressing what looks to be what is being communicated to us here of the table of nations likely around the time that Israel entered into the promised land so continue reading in verse 7 the sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah and Saptah and Ramah and Saptekah and the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan now what do those names sound like? If you go back to the map and you look at where a lot of those ancestors went you see nations that would be consistent with Egypt and Arabia and the kind of language that eventually came out of those areas. Now we're going to jump down to verse 18. We'll come back to verses 8-12 through 12 in just a minute. Um, in the narrative, there's the statement of who these sons are, then there's a diversion, and then it goes back into the chronology of these sons. So we're going to come and treat 8-12 through 12 separately. So picking up at 13. Mizraim became the father of and and Enamim, and Lebanon, Lahabim and Naphtuhim, and Pathrusim, and Kausim, from which came the Philistines and Caphtorim. Now the Philistines are mentioned here parenthetically. If you see that in parentheses in your Bible, it's an explanation to the Jews who were hearing this read read hundreds of years later because the hated Philistines are not mentioned anywhere in this table of nations. And so this is a parenthetical mentioning of the Philistines that don't show up in the table of nations that are present when Israel eventually enters into the promised land. So continuing in verse 15, Canaan became the father of Sidon and, the first, and his firstborn and Hath and the Jebusite and the Amorite and the Girgashite and the Hivite and the Archite and the and and the Arvadite and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite, and afterwards the families of the Canaanites were spread abroad, the territory of the Canaanite extended from Saddam, as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Saddam, and Gomorrah, and Admah and Zeboim, as far as Lasha, verse 20, these are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to the languages, by their lands, by their nations. Now, as you go and read through the history of Israel, you're going to see a lot of these names, a lot of these places referenced. This is why they're being, they're being included in this genealogy, so that Israel of Moses' day has a connection to the peoples that they are going to encounter. So there's not an exact mirror of what Israel is going to experience with what is mentioned here. Again, it's impossible to to state that with absolute precision. This is the best way that scholars have been able to piece this together as we would understand it. So, here we get a look at the whole Hamite flow. Ham has four sons, Cush, Mezraim, Put, and Canaan. So, Cush has five sons and two grandsons from Ramah named Sheba and Dedan. The others are not really broken out with a ton of detail. So, the seven names associated in verses 13 and 14 are families and not individuals. That's a really important distinction for us to make because we might look at this as a single person and say, well, how could all these people throw out a single person? It's actually a family. It's a much larger group than would be just an individual. So, for example, if you were to say the Canes, we're not talking just about Bob and Janet, we're talking about all the Canes everywhere from Bob and Janet's line as that multiplies and gets broader as that gets worked out over the ages. So... Mizraim, anytime you see the I am ending, it's an ending that means a people, not an individual. Later on in this genealogy, you see, you, genealogy, you see the ites. Well, ites or ims refer to people groups and not just individual. The Canaanites, the, the Gergavites, etc., etc., etc. Those are peoples, not just Individual. So, now a couple of highlights here, and highlights are really all we have time for. Cush is the Bible's name for Ethiopia. So Ham's people went south. There was also a Cush later on in Arabia. And then there is Nimrod, who we're going to look at in a little bit more detail in just a moment, who is the son of Cush. Nimrod built his world empire in the Mesopotamian Valley directly east of Israel in what's known as the Fertile Crescent, you've heard that right, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, you've heard that right, by the way, that is a hot spot for Israel's ongoing conflict in the Middle East. That whole region is still rife with conflict, and it goes all the way back to what Israel says is the beginning of our history, what secular history says is the beginning of your history, and that's where there is this conflict. So Ham's sons went south and all the sons of Cush went east. All of those names can be identified with places in Arabia. So verse 13, Mizraim is Egypt, and the people who came out of him are associated with Egypt and that general area. Put is Libya in North Africa, west of Egypt, and Canaan, the fourth son, was the ancestor of the various tribes that settled in the promised land. A lot of those ites that were previously mentioned, this is where Israel would find its most direct and its most constant enemies. Those various tribes include the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Arkite, the Sinite, the Arvadite, the Zemurite, the Hathamite, All those families of Canaanites were spread abroad. So again, when you see the Ites or the M's, we're talking about families, not just individuals. So the Canaanites were people who descended from Canaan. But through migration, intermarriage became kinds of families all over this area. So verses 8 to 12 introduce us to this one child of Cush named Nimrod because he plays a primary role in the Tower of Babel and in Old Testament history. So here's what we're going to read in verses 8 through 12, as this is the diversion that focuses on this one son of Cush named Nimrod. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod, he became a mighty one on the earth. Pause right there. Do you remember the mighty one? The warriors of old, all the way back in Genesis 6. This is a bit of a typology that is being brought into Nimrod and it's going to be somewhat consistent with what was known about the mighty men of old, the warriors of old. So hold on to that. We'll come back to that in just a second. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Eric and Akad and Kaunah, and the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria, and built Nineveh, and Rehoboth-er, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, and that is the great city. So in the middle of this genealogy of Ham, where the flow of families were introduced to Nimrod. He's very important because this is the first time in the Bible that the word kingdom is used. Anytime the first usage of a word is used, it highlights its importance. So there's never been a kingdom before, not back through the line of Cain and all that developed in civilization through that line. And this is the beginning of the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. He's the world's first king, and the first world empire is Babel. So his power is highlighted in verse 9. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, when we see that phrase that is expressed there, we might think he's very skilled with the bow or with the sling or with the rock or with the spear or something but there's a lot of argument that we're not going to really dissect there's a lot of argument to believe that this phrase actually refers to Nimrod being a mighty warrior, not a hunter of animals but instead a killer of men so think about this Many believe that this is what this phrase is referencing is that Nimrod was a mighty warrior, a mighty soldier and as a mighty warrior he was able to conquer people groups and build his empire. Empires are built with the acquisition of land and in order to acquire land you must conquer a people. So this is what many commentators, scholars believe, is woven into this verbiage here, hunter of men, and some would prefer the translation of a mighty warrior, which indicates what is being referenced here. So as we look at chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel, the world that Nimrod built, that empire, is idolatrous, it has rejected God, it was rebellious, and it was thoroughly wicked. And as we study this, we're going to understand why God said the intent of man's heart is only evil continually, and they are trying to do something that I'm not going to let them do. I'm going to confuse them and scatter them, and then all the different languages will be developed as these individuals migrate into the regions that we've identified on this map. So thinking about the reality that empires are built with the acquisition of land, and land requires the conquering of a people, wars today in our current world are being waged primarily over land, the history of that land, and the presumed rightful ownership of that land. The battle in the Middle East is about who does this land really belong to. Ukraine has been invaded by Russia because there's a debate about who that land belongs to. China may or may not invite, invade Taiwan because China believes that land belongs to them. So all of this is woven into what is being played out today with empires being built, land being acquired, peoples being conquered. And this is what, is ta- what, this is what takes place throughout all of history. Think about this. This is ad-lib, so um, don't write this down as as absolute, infallible truth. Families began with tribes. Tribes developed into peoples. These peoples carved out territory. And as these tribes and as these territories battled with one another... They were conquered, they were enslaved, they then went on and conquered other groups, they themselves were conquered, etc., etc., etc. This has played out through thousands of years of human history. What we're seeing here is a preview to the history that Israel is going to find itself fighting in as expressed here through Genesis 10 and then eventually in the scattering of nations in chapter 11. So Nimrod wielded deadly power. He ruled ruthlessly in the middle of of the Euphrates Valley and no doubt conquered all kinds of people. He consolidated families and people groups and tribes under his great empire, Babel. Great in power, great in sin, great in idolatry, great in defiance against God. So this was the real this the first real city of man in the New World. It was built for man's glory, and this is an archetype of a future city that will be built called Babylon right? Babel, Babylon. Babel is rooted in idolatry and rebellion against God and the glorification of man. And this, in fact, is what Babylon is all about when it is eventually established and when God allows evil Babylon to come and conquer Israel and enslave them. And it's all woven into Israel's history. So Nimrod built Babel, Nebuchadnezzar, and Nimrod like man would eventually build Babylon. Nimrod God's name in Hebrew means rebel. Nimrod is a rebel. Cain was a rebel. Lamech was a rebel. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be a rebel. The places of Nimrod's kingdom mentioned in verses 10 through 12 stretch from the northernmost point of the Mesopotamian Valley at Nineveh down to the Persian Gulf and to the southernmost point at Iraq. It is a massive kingdom that is dominated by Nimrod. This area was and continues to be... An enemy of Israel filled with all kinds of hostility. And so we meet the sons of Ham. Just the highlights. The families, the tribes, the peoples, and the nations. And this paves the way for the exploration of the line of Shem, which is the main focus where Moses connects modern history to its ancestral past. So Israel's history is going to be traced back through the line of Shem, primarily through Abraham, through the, to the three sons of Noah and then all the way back into the root of Adam. It's the main focus because it is through the line of Shem that the highest blessing is going to be given, which leads us eventually into Abraham, the one with whom God will make a covenant, the one from whom the nation of Israel would eventually flow. This is all woven into Moses' purpose and what he is doing here, why he is kind of consolidating the history to show Israel where they began, and what is the world you're going to enter into, and it then paints a picture for future Israel to understand the the root of their enemies and their battles and their wars, and us today looking back, oh, it makes a lot more sense now than it ever used to. So we look now at number three, the line of Shem. Verse 21, also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. So immediately here in verse 21, we meet Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Here is the first reference to a word that we hear all the time. Eber is in many ways the root of the word Hebrew. Now is that coincidental? When the nation of Israel is eventually called Hebrew, It's going to sound very familiar to the Jewish mind that we can trace our ancestry back to Eber, the child of Shem. From his loins will eventually come Abraham. So it is from Shem that the Semites come. You've heard of that? Anti-Semite? Semite, Shem. Is all woven in together. It is from Shem that comes all the sons of Eber, who gave the name Hebrew to the chosen people. Verse 22. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpekshad and Lud and Aram. They all settled in the Middle East. Elam is the father of the Enomites, a name you're familiar with. You have the name Arpachshad. He is in the line of Abraham. We'll see that when we get to chapter 11. Lud, the father of the Lydians in Asia Minor. Aram is the father of the Arameans or the Syrians who play a major role in the rest of the Bible history and play a major role in the history today. The Arameans are the ones who developed the Aramaic language, which was very, very common within the world of the Hebrews throughout their history. Verse 23, the sons of Aram were Uz, and Hol, and Gethar, and Mash. Do you know who lived under Uz, who came from the line of Uz? Job. It's your study in Paul and in Steve's class. So Job came from, Job came from Uz. Verse 24 and 25, Arpachshad became the father of Shelah, and Shelah became the father of Eber, the two sons born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Jachtim. So here we're introduced and highlighted Peleg, and Peleg means divided. So Peleg was around at the time of the Tower of Babel when the scattering took place. And so this is a bit of a prophecy that is being given here in this name, and it prophesies the division that is going to take place at Babel when God says enough is enough and I'm gonna scatter you everywhere. So the rest of those names stretch from the descendants of Shem, Shem the Semites, all across the Middle East. We'll look at a map in just a moment. Joktan became the father of Almadad and Sheleph and Haz, Hazar Muff. And Jerah, and Hadaram and Uzal, and Dikla and Opal, and Abamal, and Sheba, and Ophar, and Havilah and Jokob, all were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlement extended from Mesha as you go towards Sephar, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. So Ham settles the south... Africa into Asia, Japheth settles to the north, Europe into Persia and India, and Shem stays predominantly in the Middle East. He will venture, the line will venture a little bit out of the Middle East, but you can visualize kind of a northern, northern eastern, a southern, southern eastern, and then a middle, middle eastern. As the line of the three sons of Noah are established. Verse 32 concludes our section here. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Every living single human being, every single living human being has come from the sons of Noah Trace through these three lines. There's a lot of intermingling, there's a lot of migration, so you can't say there isn't some of more than one son in any dominant people group. There's a lot of mixing that goes that goes on here. 26 families are listed from Shem, 30 from Ham, 14 from Japheth, totaling 70, which is a number of completeness as a part of the Hebrew literary style. This is a picture of the new world after the flood, one that would not look any different than the pre-flood world. It would be filled with violence. And hatred and division. Now, I'm going to show you a second map here. And this really needs to be in a um, uh, landscape 16 by 9 ratio instead of a 4 by 3. This is a picture of what is called the 1040 window. And it really needs to be scrunched more and lengthened more. The 1040 window is the rectangular area of North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia which approximates between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north latitude, this 1040 window is often called the resistant belt. It includes the majority of the world's Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists. What was once the birthplace of Israel, and by extension Christianity, is now the most hostile world towards Israel and, by extension, Christianity. The evil rebellious disposition that was passed from the line of Cain down to Lamech was picked up by the line of Ham, where the rebellious spirit was multiplied through the line of Canaan, and sadly in the areas that the line of Shem once dominated are now incredibly hostile to their ancestor Shem, and by extension, Israel, and also the birthplace of Christianity. The words of Romans 1 describe this reality even in today's modern world. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, God's, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood to what has been made, so that even they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. All you have to do is to begin to read through Israel's history after the Exodus And you see how they were exposed to idolatry and how they followed it. How they were infected by this rebellious spirit. How they were impacted by the idolatry of their day. To the extent that even the nation of Israel would exchange the truth and the glory of God for something man-made. For something that totally diminished the image of God as revealed to them through all of the covenant, through all of the revelation, through all of the promises. They just said, no, we like to make God in our image and the way that makes sense to us. And my brother, my sister, it's not any different today. Most people don't have an objection to the concept of God But not the God of the Bible. Muslims don't have an objection with the concept of God. But not the God of the Bible. Certainly not Jesus. And so they created their God in the image of a man. Allah through the prophet Muhammad. And you can make that statement to be true about every false religion today. Well, we've spent as much time as I'm willing to spend on genealogies. There's a little bit more coming as we look at the Lion of Shem. But this is just an overview designed to paint a picture for the world that Israel is going to enter into when they, when they enter into the Promised Land. And it will help them understand why things are the way they are. Why God told them to do what He told them to do. Why they're being attacked by the peoples that are attacking them. And although it's not the most exciting information, it's very, very central to the entirety of the plot that we have here. All of Israel's history flows to the promise of a Messiah. All of the promise of a Messiah flows back through the genealogy that we just briefly looked at to fulfill the promise made In Genesis 3.15, that from the seed of the woman will come the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah. And that's what this is really all about. Let's pray.